All right. I just want to introduce you guys to myself, uh, introduce myself to you guys, and um, I'm going to just start by saying that uh, my name is Sam. I live in California. Uh, I'm originally from the Midwest, and I love to read. I didn't always love to read. Um, basically, I was homeschooled at one point by my mom and my dad. They did a fantastic job, but... I wasn't taking to the reading thing. I, I learned using phonics, and I don't know if you know anybody's really familiar with phonics nowadays, but it was a system for teaching kids how to read. Um, pretty universally known as a tough one to get through as a student. Um, I was having a tough time. My grandma, my mom's mom, she lived uh, near Chicago, which is about three hours away from me, and she decided she was gonna do something about it, so she went to her library. And with her librarian, uh, they made a plan together. And she stuck with that plan for eight years. Uh, it helped me learn how to read. It helped my little uh, sisters and brother learn how to read. Uh, I'm the oldest of six. And uh, it's been fantastic. Her system was she would go to the library, get a book, and then read it out loud and record herself on a an audio cassette tape, which would which she would then send to me, and every week I'd open that up, and I'd listen to the stories. And I loved them. I, uh, she read Dr. Doolittle, uh, Swiss Family Robinson, those are my two favorites, but she read a bunch of books, and what ended up happening was I eventually started to enjoy the stories coming out of books, and I started to realize, you know, there must be something to this reading thing. It's not just about learning the words, it's about learning how to find the stories, how to dig those out of the books. So... It would be great, I think, if uh, at some point, maybe, some kid wants to read along with what I'm doing here. Um, that said, we're starting with Harry Potter. Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, or um, it was released as Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone in the U.S. Uh, I didn't read Harry Potter until uh, I turned 20. I got really sick, and... Um, over the course of eight days, I read all the way through all seven books. Um, I couldn't give you a timeline of that, and I will say, although I loved every minute of it, uh, I don't know that my comprehension of it was necessarily that great, but um, I've been reading Harry Potter out loud for probably almost two years now, never for an audience, never online, but I wanted to give it a shot. So here's a little info about this stream. Um, this stream has basically two purposes. The first, uh, for you guys to enjoy the story. Um, maybe that's going to be for you. Maybe that's going to be you're enjoying the story again. Maybe this is going to be your first time. Maybe it's your first time with the books instead of the movie. I hope you can enjoy it. And then secondly, I want this to be pretty relaxing. I'm going to try and perform, you know, this is, this is going to be, uh... You know, it might get kind of loud at some of the louder moments in the books, the fight scenes and stuff. Um, but I really would like this to be a relaxing time. I know a lot of my viewers are probably going to be students. And uh, you're, you know, I'm, I'm my current schedule is Sunday night. So you guys are going to be going to school tomorrow, trying to be heroes. And you guys deserve a chance to relax. Um, uh, I am going to perform. Like I said, I'm going to be doing... Uh, a lot of voices. I give a, a different voice to every character. I will say, not all of my voices are going to sound like the actors in the movies. I'm sorry if that's a problem. 
Um, for a lot of it, the, the reason is for clarity. When you have two people in a conversation who have kind of a similar voice in the movies, uh, it's fine because you can look at their faces and you just look at whose mouth is moving, but you can't do that in this stream because it's going to be my mouth moving the entire time. So, uh, I've changed some things for clarity. I think you guys will get the point. Uh, and then, you know, sometimes during the streams, uh, if you've got a bunch of conversations, for instance, um, if you've got a conversation with a bunch of Weasleys in it, they've all got the same accent. And so I might change one or two Weasley voices very slightly so that you guys can tell what the difference is between people. Again, you should be able to pick it up pretty quick. I'm not worried about it. I really want to talk to chat. I'm really excited about it. I would like this to be um, a time for you guys to listen. Like I said, listen, relax, enjoy the story. Um, and then between chapters, I would love to talk to chat about uh, new characters that we've met, what happened in the chapter previously. I would love to have you know discussions about what we're seeing, what we're reading, what's happening. Now, that being said, there are going to be rules for chat. There are two big ones and a little one. The two big ones are, I'm not going to tolerate racism, sexism, homophobia, none of that. I'm not having it. Uh, I'm going to ban quickly for that stuff, so just don't do it and we should be fine. I think that's a pretty basic kind of human expectation is, you know, don't do those things. Racism, sexism, homophobia, no place for them. Secondly, no spoilers. I think I probably shouldn't have to say that too many times. Um, this is a story stream, and I hope you guys can remember it's very important that for the people who are experiencing this for the first time, we don't give things away too quickly. We want them to enjoy it just like we got to. Finally, this is the minor rule. Uh, just have good stream behavior. You know, when you're in chat, don't spam stuff, don't harass anyone, and do not start flame wars. Um... I think it's important to everyone that we keep it calm. Everyone stay calm, for goodness sake. All right, and keep it clean. Keep the language clean. You know, this is a... Uh, it's a young adult series, and so I'm going to... I plan to be keeping it as clean as the books. Um, if you would do me a favor, I'd do the same. All right, that's all for the intro, so I'm going to start reading. I am incredibly excited about this. All right, here we go. Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, or Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, Chapter One, The Boy Who Lived. Mr. and Mrs. Dursley of Number 4, Privet Drive, were proud to say, that they were perfectly normal, thank you very much. They were the last people you'd expect to be involved in anything strange or mysterious, because they just didn't hold with such nonsense. Mr. Dursley was the director of a firm called Grunnings, which made drills. He was a big, beefy man with hardly any neck, although he did have a very large mustache. Mrs. Dursley was thin and blonde, and had nearly twice the usual amount of neck, which came in very useful as she spent so much of her time craning over garden fences, spying on the neighbors. The Dursleys had a small son called Dudley, and in their opinion, there was no finer boy anywhere. 
The Dursleys had everything they wanted, but they also had a secret, and it was their greatest fear that somebody would discover it. They didn't think they could bear it if anyone found out about the Potters. Mrs. Potter was Mrs. Dursley's sister, but they hadn't met for several years. In fact, Mrs. Dursley pretended she didn't have a sister, because her sister and her good-for-nothing husband were about as undursleyish as it was possible to be. The Dursleys shuddered to think what the neighbors would say if the Potters arrived in the street. The Dursleys knew that the Potters had a small son, too, but they had never seen him. This boy was another good reason for keeping the Potters away. They didn't want Dudley mixing with a child like that. When Mr. and Mrs. Dursley woke on the dull gray Tuesday our story starts, there was nothing about the cloudy sky outside to suggest that strange and mysterious things would soon be happening all over the country. Mr. Dursley hummed as he picked out his most boring tie for work, and Mrs. Dursley gossiped away happily as she wrestled a screaming Dudley into his high chair. None of them noticed a large, tawny owl flutter past the window. At half-past eight, Mr. Dursley picked up his briefcase, pecked Mrs. Dursley on the cheek, and tried to kiss Dudley goodbye, but missed, because Dudley was now having a tantrum and throwing his cereal at the walls. "'Little tyke!' chortled Mr. Weasley. "'Nope. I'm probably going to do that a number of times. Um, I'm going to try to not get the people's names mixed up, but... If I do make a mistake, that's the noise you're going to hear, and that means I'm going to go back to basically the last punctuation that you see. Probably a pretty good rule of thumb. All right. Little tyke, trotled Mr. Dursley as he left the house. He got into his car and backed out of number four's drive. It was on the corner of the street that he noticed the first sign of something peculiar. A cat reading a map. For a second, Mr. Dursley didn't realize what he had seen. Then he jerked his head around to look again. There was a tabby cat standing on the corner of Privet Drive, but there wasn't a map in sight. What could he even been thinking of? It must have been a trick of the light. Mr. Dursley blinked and stared at the cat. It stared back. As Mr. Dursley drove around the corner and up the road, he watched the cat in his mirror. It was now reading the sign that said Privet Drive. No, no, looking at the sign. Cats couldn't read maps or signs. Mr. Dursley gave himself a little shake and put the cat out of his mind. As he drove toward town, he thought of nothing except a large order of drills he was hoping to get that day. But on the edge of town, drills were driven from his mind by something new. As he sat at the usual morning traffic jam, he couldn't help noticing that there seemed to be a lot of strangely dressed people about. People in cloaks. Mr. Dursley couldn't bear people who dressed in funny clothes. The get-ups he saw in young people. He supposed this was some stupid new fashion. He drummed his fingers on the steering wheel, and his eyes fell on a huddle of these weirdos standing quite close by. They were whispering excitedly together. Mr. Dursley was enraged to see that a couple of them weren't young at all. Why, that man had to be older than he was and wearing an emerald green cloak. The nerve of him. But then it struck Mr. Dursley that this was probably some silly stunt. These people were obviously collecting for something. Yes, that would be it. The traffic moved on, and a few minutes later, Mr. Dursley arrived in the Grunnings parking lot. 
his mind back on drills. Mr. Dursley always sat with his back to the window in his large office on the ninth floor. If he hadn't, he might have found it harder to concentrate on drills that morning. He didn't see the owls swooping in past in broad daylight, though people down in the street did. They pointed and gazed open-mouthed as owl after owl sped overhead. Most of them had never seen an owl even at nighttime. Mr. Dursley, however, had a perfectly normal, owl-free morning. He yelled at five different people. He made several important telephone calls and shouted a bit more. He was in a very good mood until lunchtime, when he thought he'd stretch his legs and walk across the road to buy himself a bun from the bakery. He'd forgotten all about the people in cloaks until he passed a group of them next to the bakers. He eyed them angrily as he passed. He didn't know why, but they made him uneasy. This bunch were whispering excitedly, too, and he couldn't see a single collection tin. A single collection tin. It was on his way back past them, clutching a large doughnut in a bag, that he caught a few words of what they were saying. The Potters, that's right. That's what I heard. This is their son, Harry. Mr. Dursley stopped dead. Fear flooded him. He looked back at the whisperers as if he wanted to say something to them, but thought better of it. He dashed back across the road, hurried up to his office, snapped at his secretary not to disturb him, seized the telephone, and had almost finished dialing his home number when he changed his mind. He put the receiver back down and stroked his mustache, thinking, no, he was being stupid. Potter wasn't such an unusual name. He was sure there were lots of people called Potter who had a son called Harry. Come to think of it, he wasn't even sure his nephew was called Harry. He'd never even seen the boy. It might have been Harvey or Harold. There was no point in worrying Mrs. Dursley. She always got so upset at any mention of her sister. He didn't blame her. If he'd had a sister like that, well... But all the same, those people in cloaks... He found it a lot harder to concentrate on drills that afternoon, and when he left the building at five o'clock, he was still so worried that he walked straight into someone just outside the door. Oh, sorry, he grunted, as the tiny old man stumbled and almost fell. It was a few seconds before Mr. Dursley realized that the man was wearing a violet cloak. He didn't seem at all upset at being almost knocked to the ground. On the contrary, his face split into a wide smile and he said in a squeaky voice that made passers-by stare, "'Don't be sorry, my dear sir, for nothing could upset me today. Rejoice, for you know who was gone at last. Even muggles like yourself should be celebrating this happy, happy day.' And the old man hugged Mr. Dursley around the middle and walked off. Mr. Dursley stood rooted to the spot. He had been hugged by a complete stranger. He also thought he had been called a muggle, whatever that was. He was rattled. He hurried to his car and set off for home, hoping that he was imagining things, which he had never hoped before because he didn't approve of imagination. As he pulled into the driveway of number four, the first thing he saw, and it didn't improve his mood, 
was the tabby cat he'd spotted that morning. It was now sitting on the garden wall. He was sure it was the same one. It had the same markings around its eyes. Uh, shoo, said Mr. Dursley loudly. The cat didn't move. It just gave him a stern look. Was this normal cat behavior? Mr. Dursley wondered. Trying to pull himself together, he let himself into the house. He was still determined not to mention anything to his wife. Mrs. Dursley had a nice, normal day. She told him over dinner all about Mrs. Nextdoor's problems with her daughter and how Dudley had learned a new word. Won't. Mr. Dursley tried to act normally. When Dudley had been put to bed, he went into the living room in time to catch the last report on the evening news. And finally, birdwatchers everywhere have reported that the nation's owls have been behaving very unusually today. Although owls normally hunt at night and are hardly ever seen in the daylight, there have been hundreds of sightings of these birds flying in every direction since sunrise. Hi, Rachel. Thanks for coming back. Experts are unable to explain why the owls have suddenly changed their sleeping pattern. The newscaster allowed himself a grin. Most mysterious. And now over to Jim McGuffin with the weather. Going to be any showers of owls tonight, Jim? Well, Ted said the weatherman. I don't know about that, but it's not only the owls that have been acting oddly today. Viewers as far apart as Kent, Yorkshire, and Dundee have been reporting that instead of the rain I promised yesterday, they've been having a downpouring of shooting stars. Perhaps people have been celebrating bonfire night early. It's not until next week, folks, but I can promise a wet night tonight. Mr. Dursley sat frozen in his armchair. Shooting stars all over Britain. Owls flying by, by daylight. Mysterious people in cloaks all over the place. And a whisper. A whisper about the potters. Mrs. Dursley came into the living room carrying two cups of tea. It was no good. He'd have to say something to her. He cleared his throat nervously. Petunia, dear. You haven't heard from your sister lately, have you? As he had expected, Mrs. Dursley looked shocked and angry. After all, they normally pretended she didn't have a sister. No, she said sharply. Why? Funny stuff on the news, Mr. Dursley mumbled. Owls and shooting stars. And there were a lot of funny people in town today. So? snapped Mrs. Dursley. Well, well I, I just thought maybe it was something to do with, uh, you know, her crowd. Mrs. Dursley sipped her tea through pursed lips. Mr. Dursley wondered whether he dared tell her he heard the name Potter. He decided he didn't dare. Instead, he said, as casually as he could, That sound, he'd be about uh, Dudley's age now, wouldn't he? I suppose so said Mrs. Dursley stiffly. Oh, what's his name again? Uh, Howard, isn't it? Harry. Nasty common name, if you ask me. Oh, yes, said Mr. Dursley, his heart sinking horribly. 
Yes, I, I quite agree. Welcome back, Rachel. He didn't say another word on the subject as they went upstairs to bed. While Mrs. Dursley was in the bathroom, Mr. Dursley crept to the window in his bedroom and creeped and peered down into the front garden. The cat was still there. It was staring down Privet Drive as though it were waiting for something. Was he imagining things? Could all this have anything to do with the Potters? If it did, if it got out that they were related to a pair of... Well, he didn't think he could bear it. The Dursleys got into bed. Mrs. Dursley fell asleep quickly, but Mr. Dursley lay awake, turning it all over in his mind. His last comforting thoughts before he fell asleep was that even if the Potters were involved, there was no reason for them to come near him and Mrs. Dursley. The Potters knew very well what he and Petunia thought about them and their kind. He couldn't see how he and Petunia could get mixed up in anything that might be going on. He yawned and turned over. It couldn't affect them. How very wrong he was. Mr. Dursley might have been drifting into an uneasy sleep, but the cat on the wall outside was showing no sign of sleepiness. It was sitting still as a statue, its eyes fixed unblinkingly on the far corner of Privet Drive. It didn't so much as quiver when the car door slammed on the next street, nor when two owls swooped overhead. In fact, it was nearly midnight before the cat moved at all. A man appeared on the corner that the cat had been watching, appeared so suddenly and silently you'd have thought he just popped out of the ground. The cat's eyes twitched, and its eyes narrowed. Nothing like this man had ever been seen on Privet Drive. He was tall, thin, and very old, judging by the silver of his beard and hair, which were both long enough to tuck into his belt. He was wearing long robes, a purple cloak that swept the ground, and high-heeled, buckled boots. His eyes were light, bright, and sparkling behind half-moon spectacles, and his nose was very long and crooked, although, as though, as though it had been broken at least twice. This man's name was Albus Dumbledore. Albus Dumbledore didn't seem to realize that he had just arrived in a street where everything from his name to his boots was unwelcome. He was busy rummaging through his cloak, looking for something. But he did seem to realize he was being watched because he looked up suddenly at the cat, which was still staring at him from the other end of the street. For some reason, the sight of the cat seemed to amuse him. He chuckled and muttered, I should have known. He found what he was looking for inside his pocket. It seemed to be a silver cigarette lighter. He flicked it open, held it up in the air, and clicked it. The nearest street lamp went out with a little pop. He clicked it again. The next lamp flickered into darkness. Twelve times he clicked the put-outer until only until the only lights left on the whole street were two tiny pinpricks in the distance, which were the eyes of the cat watching him. If anyone looked out of their window now, even Mrs. Dursley with her beady eyes, they wouldn't be able to see anything that was happening down on the pavement. 
Dumbledore slipped the put-outer back inside his cloak and set down the street toward number four, where he sat down on the wall next to the cat. He didn't look at it, but after a moment he spoke to it. Fancy seeing you here, Professor McGonagall. He turned to look at the tabby, but it had gone. Instead, he was smiling at a rather severe-looking woman, who was wearing square glasses, exactly the shape of the markings the cat had had around its eyes. She, too, was wearing a cloak, an emerald one. Her black hair was drawn into a tight bun. She looked distinctly ruffled. "'How did you know that it was me?' she asked. "'My dear Professor, I've never seen a cat sit so stiffly.' "'You'd be stiff, too, if you'd been sitting on a brick wall all day,' said Professor McGonagall. "'All day, when you could have been celebrating. I must have passed a dozen feasts and parties on the way here.' Professor McGonagall sniffed angrily. "'Oh, yes, everyone's celebrating all right,' she said impatiently. "'You'd think they'd be a bit more careful, but no. Even the muggles have noticed that something's going on.' It was in their news. She jerked her head back toward the Dursley's dark living room window. I heard it. Flocks of owls, shooting stars. Well, they're not completely stupid. They were bound to notice something. Shooting stars down in Kent. I'll bet that was Daedalus Diggle. He's never had much sense. You can't blame them, said Dumbledore gently. We've had precious little to celebrate for eleven years. I knew that, said Professor McGonagall irritably, but that's no reason to lose our heads. People are being downright careless out on the street in broad daylight, not even dressed in muggle clothes, swapping rumours. She threw a sharp sideways glance at Dumbledore here, as though hoping he was going to tell her something. But he didn't, so she went on. Rachel, thank you for the update. I got it a little while ago, but I didn't want to interrupt too much. Thank you very much. A fine thing it would be if, on the very day that you know who seems to have disappeared at last, the muggles found out about us all. I suppose he really has gone, Dumbledore. It certainly seems so, said Dumbledore. We have much to be thankful for. Would you care for a lemon drop? A what? A lemon drop. They're a kind of muggle sweet I'm rather fond of. No, thank you, said Professor McGonagall coldly, as though she didn't think this was the moment for lemon drops. As I say, even if you know who has gone... My dear Professor, surely a sensible person like yourself can call him by his name. All of this you-know-who nonsense... For eleven years I have been trying to persuade people to call him by his proper name. Voldemort. Professor McGonagall flinched, but Dumbledore, who was unsticking two lemon drops, seemed not to notice. It'll get so confusing if we keep saying you-know-who. I've never seen any reason to be frightened of saying Voldemort's name. I know you haven't, said Professor McGonagall, sounding half-exasperated half-admiring. But you're different. Everyone knows that you're the only one who... you know who. Oh, all right, Voldemort was frightened of. 
You flatter me, said Dumbledore calmly. Voldemort had powers I never will have. Only because you're too well, noble to use them. It's lucky it's dark. I haven't brushed so much since Madame Pomfrey told me she liked my new earmuffs. Professor McGonagall shot a sharp look at Dumbledore and said, The owls are next to nothing. The owls are nothing compared to the rumours that are flying around. Do you know what everyone's saying? About why he's disappeared, about what finally stopped him? It seemed that Professor McGonagall had reached the point she was most anxious to discuss. The real reason that she had been waiting on a cold, hard wall all day. For neither as a cat nor as a woman had she fixed Dumbledore with such a piercing stare as she did now. It was plain that whatever everyone was saying, she was not going to believe it until Dumbledore told her it was true. Dumbledore, however, was choosing another lemon drop, and did not answer. What they're saying, she pressed on, is that last night Voldemort turned up in Godric's Hollow. He went to find the Potters. The rumor is that Lily and James Potter are... Uh, that... that they're dead. Dumbledore bowed his head. Professor McGonagall gasped. Lily and James, I, I can't believe it. I didn't want to believe it. Oh, oh, Albus. Dumbledore reached out and patted her on the shoulder. I know. I know, he said heavily. Professor McGonagall's voice trembled as he went on, as she went on, excuse me. That's not all. They're saying he tried to kill the Potter's son, Harry. But he, he couldn't. He couldn't kill that little boy. No one knows why or how, but they're saying that when he couldn't kill Harry Potter, Voldemort's power somehow broke. And that's why he's gone. Dumbledore nodded glumly. It's... it's true, faltered Professor McGonagall. After all he's done, after all the people he's killed, he couldn't kill a little boy. It's just astounding, of all the things to stop him. But how in the name of heaven did Harry survive? We can only guess, said Dumbledore. We may never know. Professor McGonagall pulled out a lace handkerchief and dabbed at her eyes beneath her spectacles. Dumbledore gave a great sniff as he took a golden watch from his pocket and examined it. It was a very odd watch. It had twelve hands, but no numbers. Instead, little planets were moving around the edge. Thanks for the update. It seemed to have made sense to Dumbledore, though, because he picked it back up, put it in his pocket, and said... Hagrid is late. I suppose it was he who told you that I'd be here, by the way. Yes, said Professor McGonagall, and I didn't suppose you are going to tell me why you're here, of all places. I've come to bring Harry to his aunt and uncle. They're the only family he's got left now. You didn't mean... You can't mean the people who live here, cried Professor McGonagall, jumping to her feet and pointing at number four. 
Dumbledore, you can't. I've been watching them all day. You couldn't find two people who are less like us, and they've got this son. There are some kicking his mother all the way up the street, screaming for sweets. Harry Potter, come and live here. It's the best place for him, said Dumbledore firmly. His aunt and uncle will be able to explain everything to him when he's older. I've written them a letter. A letter, repeated Professor McGonagall faintly, sitting back down on the wall. Really, Dumbledore, you, you think you can explain all this in a letter? These people will never understand him. He'll be famous. A legend. I wouldn't be surprised if today was known as Harry Potter Day in the future. There will be books written about Harry. Every child in our world will know his name. Exactly, said Dumbledore, looking very seriously over the top of his half-moon spectacles. It would be enough to turn any boy's head. Famous before he can walk and talk. Famous for something he won't even remember. Can't you see how much better off he'll be? Growing away, growing up, away from all that until he's ready to take it. Professor McGonagall opened her mouth, changed her mind, swallowed, and then said, Yes, yes, you're right, of course, but how is the boy getting here, Dumbledore? She eyed his cloak suddenly as though she thought he might be hiding Harry underneath it. Hagrid is bringing him. You think it wise to trust Hagrid with something as important as this? I would trust Hagrid with my life, said Dumbledore. I'm not saying his heart isn't in the right place, said Professor McGonagall grudgingly, but you can't pretend he's not careless. He does tend to... What was that? A low rumbling sound had broken the silence around them. It grew steadily louder as they looked up and down the street for some sign of a headlight. It swelled to a roar as they both looked up at the sky, and a huge motorcycle fell out of the air and landed on the road in front of them. If the motorcycle was huge, it was nothing to the man sitting astride it. He was almost twice as tall as a normal man, and at least five times as wide. He looked simply too big to be allowed, and so wild. Long tangles of bushy black hair and beard hid most of his face. He had hands the size of trash can lids, and his feet and their leather boots were like baby dolphins. In his vast muscular arms, he was holding a bundle of blankets. Hagrid, said Dumbledore, sounding relieved. At last. And where did you get that motorcycle? I borrowed it, Professor Dumbledore, sir said the giant, climbing carefully off the motorcycle as he spoke. Young Sirius Black lent it to me. I got him, sir. No problems, were there? No, sir. House was almost destroyed, but I got him out all right before the muggles started swarming around. He fell asleep as we was flying over Bristol. Dumbledore and Professor McGonagall bent forward over the bundle of blankets. Inside, just visible, was a baby boy, fast asleep. Under a tuft of jet-black hair over his forehead, they could see a curiously shaped cut, like a bolt of lightning. Is that where? 
Professor McGonagall whispered. Yes, said Dumbledore. You'll have that scar forever. Couldn't you do something about it, Dumbledore? Even if I could, I wouldn't. Scars can come in handy. I have one myself, above my left knee, and that is a perfect map of the London Underground. Well, give him here, Hagrid. We had better get this over with. Dumbledore took Harry in his arms and turned toward the Dursleys' house. Good night. Good night. Say goodbye to him, sir, asked Hagrid. He bent his great shaggy beard over Harry and gave him what must have been a very scratchy, whiskery kiss. Then suddenly Hagrid let out a howl like a wounded dog. Shh! hissed Professor McGonagall. You'll wake the muggles! I'm sorry! sobbed Hagrid, taking out a large spotted handkerchief and burying his face in it. But I, I can't stand it. Lily and James dead, and poor little Harry. Off to live with muggles! Yes, yes, it's all very sad, but get a grip on yourself, Hagrid, or we'll be found, Professor McGonagall whispered, patting Hagrid gingerly on the arm as Dumbledore stepped over the low garden wall and walked to the front door. He laid Harry gently on the doorstep, took a letter out of his cloak, tucked it inside Harry's blankets, and then came back to the other two. For a full minute, the three of them stood and looked at the little bundle, Hagrid's shoulders shook. Professor McGonagall blinked furiously, and the twinkling light that usually shone from Dumbledore's eyes seemed to have gone out. Well, said Dumbledore finally, that's that. We've no business staying here. We may as well go in, go and join the celebration. Yep, said Hagrid in a very muffled voice. I best get this bike back away. Good night, Professor McGonagall. Professor Dumbledore, sir. Wiping his streaming eyes on his jacket sleeve, Hagrid swung himself onto his motorcycle and kicked the engine to life. With a roar, it rose into the air and off into the night. I shall see you soon, I expect, Professor, said Dumbledore, nodding to Professor McGonagall. She blew her nose in reply. Dumbledore turned and walked back down the street. On the corner, he stopped and took out the silver put-outer. He clicked it once, and twelve balls of light sped back onto their street lamp, so that Privet Drive glowed suddenly orange, and he could make out a tabby cat slinking around the corner at the other end of the street. He could just see the bundle of blankets on the step of number four. Good luck, Harry, he murmured. He turned on his heel, and with a swish of his cloak, he was gone. A breeze ruffled the neat hedges of Privet Drive, which lay silent and tidy under the inky sky. The very last place you would expect astonishing things to happen. Harry Potter rolled over inside his blankets without waking up. One small hand closed on the letter beside him, and he slept on, not knowing he was special, not knowing he was famous, not knowing he would be woken in a few hours' time by Mrs. Dursley's scream as she opened the front door to put out the milk bottles, 
nor that he would spend the next few weeks being prodded and pinched by his cousin Dudley. He couldn't know that at this very moment, people meeting in secret all over the country were holding up their glasses and saying in hushed voices, To Harry Potter, the boy who lived. That is the end of chapter one. <laughs> Just in time for this stream to go nuts again. I'm going to continue. On with chapter two. But first, is there anything we would like to discuss from the chapter? And by we, I mean me and you. So here's what happened in the chapter. Uh, basically, it started with um, a man named Mr. Dursley. It would appear Mr. Dursley is a pretty ordinary individual, um, lacks imagination, um, and doesn't really stand much for creativity. He doesn't like it. Um, and then he realizes that his day is going a bit weirder than normal. Um, he is remembering his, uh, his sister-in-law, Mrs. Dursley's sister. Um, we don't know why, but the Dursleys don't care for Mrs. Dursley's sister. Um, who is now uh, married and goes by the last name of Potter. Uh, Mr. Dursley is worried all day that these strange occurrences, like shooting stars and owls flying in the daytime, people dressed up in cloaks and funny clothes, um, he's wondering if it has anything to do with the crowd that the Potters run with. And he's hoping that Mrs. Uh, Potter... Mrs. Dursley's sister, doesn't make an appearance, and that uh, that whole family basically stays away. Um, then they go to bed. Outside in the street, uh, a number of these very strange characters show up, and they have a short discussion. One of them is named Albus Dumbledore, and uh, one of them is named Professor McGonagall. They talk about how there is uh, basically a big, uh, there's a great menace out in the world um, called Voldemort. P people are so afraid of this menace that they're afraid to say his name. And uh, Albus Dumbledore, it's going to be referred to mostly as Dumbledore, uh, Dumbledore insists that they should call him by his name instead of you-know-who. And people continue to refer to him by you-know-who because they're afraid to say his name. Um... It turns out this menace tried to kill the Potters. Um, he succeeded in caring, in killing James and Lily. Those are the parents. But they had a baby son named Harry. And it seems that in his attempt to kill Harry, uh, Voldemort's powers were somehow ruined. And that Harry survived. Somehow the most powerful individual in all the wizarding world uh, failed to kill a little boy. And now, one of their associates named Hagrid is going to be bringing the boy to live with his cousin, Dudley, and his aunt and uncle, Mr. and Mrs. Dursley. Even though they're about as, un, as, uh, about as unmagical as you can imagine a, a family to be. So that's where we're at currently. Hopefully that gets you pretty much caught up. We've met... Dumbledore, he's a, an older man, 
tall. I'm sure you've seen descriptions of him or pictures of him or perhaps the movies. Um, I think we watched him together at one point. Uh, basically, I'm sure you've seen him. Older guy, long, long gray beard, long gray hair. Uh, met Dumbledore. He's a half... Nope, I just said Dumbledore. We've met Hagrid. He's a, a half giant. Uh, although I don't think we're supposed to know that yet. Whoops. But he's an enormous man, and he's got big, long, shaggy, dark hair, a big, long, shaggy beard. Um, in this chapter, Harry Potter was, um, he's an infant. He's, like, one year old. Um, I don't know exactly when, let's see, his birthday is toward the start of the school year, I know that much, um, but, uh, I think he would be less than a year old. And so he is a little infant child in a bundle of blankets when when Hagrid brings him to the Dursley's house. Very young. So he's not going to remember any of this, and so Dumbledore is counting on the Dursleys um, to communicate all of this to him, you know, to tell him about his parents, tell him about uh, who his parents are and what they're like. And about who he is. All right. Excellent. All right. If anybody has anything else, we'll talk about that. Otherwise, we move on to chapter two.